Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What's going on, you guys? Welcome back to the Neighborhood Podcast. One of the hosts of the podcast, my name is Kyle Dabra. What's going on, everybody? The other half of the podcast has returned. Kevin Valentin here. What is going on, Kyle? What a crazy Sunday, bro. Good to be back. Yeah, I imagine you, you got to be feeling pretty good right now. The shirt definitely reflects that. But before, before we do start, Kevin, I know you weren't here last Friday. Obviously, your father was going through pretty serious surgery last week. Just uh, give us a quick update on that. Pops is good. Uh, back at home. Nice and uh, relaxed and healing with mom and my brother. Um, he had diverticulitis, so they had to go in and take a couple of inches out of his um, intestines. So, mm-hmm. you know, he's good to go. I'm thankful that, you know, he was able to leave home, uh, leave the hospital a little early. He was supposed to leave today, but they actually sent him home yesterday. So God is good. And, and you know, I'm just happy that my dad is back home and safe and sound, man. Just going to be a long road to recovery. Glad that Pops is feeling better, my guy. Yes, sir. Appreciate you, homie. And, Appreciate and, and, you. And I imagine that that beatdown by the Indianapolis Colts definitely made him happier. So we'll go through the agenda like we've always done. Uh, we're going to go over our feature topics in the NFL. We'll go over the, the three games that really kind of stuck out uh, from the Sunday slate. And the first one will be the Indianapolis Colts putting an absolute beatdown on the Buffalo Bills. <laughs> I should have learned my lesson after last week. Um, Indianapolis was on a roll. <laughs> I picked Buffalo just because they've been the more consistent team this year. And then Jonathan Taylor has the game of his life and just destroys the Bills single-handedly. So we'll talk about that. We'll talk about whether or not that Jonathan Taylor is now legitimately in the MVP discussion after putting out arguably one of the best, if not the best, performance from my running back throughout the entire league in that week 11 matchup against the bills. And then after that, we're going to talk about the Kansas city chiefs and Dallas Cowboys game, a defensive battle, but the chiefs do get the win at home. They improved to seven and four. We'll just dive into that game and we'll, we'll talk about whether or not that we think that KC is fully back. Granted, they have won four straight games. We'll do, we'll dive into that discussion a little bit later, but they are back on top of the AFC West and definitely a force to be reckoned with in the AFC once again. After that, we'll talk about the Minnesota Vikings coming up with a huge divisional win against the Green Bay Packers, a very tightly contested game, but the Vikings end up 
winning the game on a late field goal to give them the edge over Green Bay. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about whether or not that their playoff chances are still alive after that close win to Green Bay. After that, after our featured topics when it comes to the games from the Sunday slate, we'll talk about our honorable mentions, very similar to what we've done before. Kevin will pick a game of mention from Week 11, and then I'll finish it up with a game that I think definitely deserves some it definitely deserves a mention from week 11. And then we're going to talk about the Monday night matchup that's going to take place between the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the New York Giants. After that, we'll transition into one discussion about uh, an NBA topic that we have for the agenda, and that will be Clay Thompson is set for his return from, I believe, his Achilles rehab, and he is set to return on Christmas Day. So we'll talk about just what are the expectations for Clay Thompson once he comes back into the lineup for Golden State within, I'd say, probably the next month or so. And then I know this is probably going to get, you know, a sigh of, what's the word I'm looking for? Exasperation from Kevin when we talk about Dan Mullen, uh, the head coach for the University of Florida, has been fired, has been let go. Currently, the Florida Gators have a 5-6 and six record, and in their last six games, they've gone two and four. We'll just talk about the firing itself and whether or not that the move to remove Dan Mullen as the head coach from Florida was justified from Florida. But that is the slate that we have for the episode today. So let's not waste any more time. Let's dive right into it. And we're going to talk about the Indianapolis Colts putting an absolute beatdown on the Buffalo Bills this past weekend. The Colts won by the score of 41 to 15. Jonathan Taylor was a one-man wrecking crew today. Had five total touchdowns. Four of them came on the ground, and then one came in the air. And on the other side of the ball, Indianapolis's defense held Buffalo to 15 points and forced three turnovers. Two of them were interceptions from Josh Allen, and then one was from Mitchell Trubisky at the end of the game. Mitchell Trubisky signing, Kevin, and he's back to his old ways, turning the ball over. I guess some things <laughs> just never change, though. But, Kevin, take it away from here. Just what do you make of this absolute domination from the Colts against the Bills this weekend? Well, first and foremost, big win against a pivotal opponent. Uh, obviously, we had a salty taste left in our mouth from last season of falling short in the wild card game against them. And we felt that we owed them one. And then, of course, Frank must be listening. He got to be listening because this man ran the damn ball. Jonathan Taylor had 32, in my opinion, should have been more. But when you're legitimately sitting there averaging, what was it? I want to say 5.8 yards per carry. You're literally moving the ball as much as you could possibly can. So as an offensive unit, I cannot complain whatsoever. 41 to 15 says a lot. Obviously, this was led by Jonathan Taylor single-handedly. Carson didn't really have to do too much. The pass rush did get to us a little bit in the third quarter to where we had a couple of punts. So definitely a little bit concerning there. They found ways to double and kind of make life difficult for uh, Michael Pittman Jr. But it was also raining, so we did what we needed to do traditionally. When it rains that hard and there's weather uh, challenges, you're supposed to run the football. So I felt that we did what we needed to do on the defensive side of the ball. On the special team side, we got everything done. All three phases, we looked absolutely incredible. Uh, Forcing three interceptions, getting that fumble on special teams from the kick return and capitalizing on that. Um, 
The Colts lead the league in NFL takeaways with 25, so that's huge. Obviously, Jonathan Taylor's out here breaking every NFL record you could possibly think of. He also leads the league in rushing. He is also now in a category with LaDainian Tomlinson and I believe somebody else to where he has, I think, eight straight games with 100 yards of scrimmage, 100 yards from scrimmage and a rushing touchdown. And, you know, it, it just continues. I mean, it's absolutely incredible what this team can do when we run the football. And, of course, that gives the defense motivation to keep the, honest, the, the offense of the other team honest. And, you know, we did what we needed to do. I could not be happier. I'm excited. Next week we go and we play the, the, the defending champs at home. So I think that that's going to be a really, really, really huge game. And I'm looking forward to it, man. The Colts are on a three-game win streak. We're looking good. I'm not satisfied. There's still plenty of areas that we can improve upon. I obviously would like to see Carson Wentz be a little bit better with his decision-making. Unfortunately, Quentin Nelson went out and did not return with an ankle injury. So curious to see what happens there. But I like how we're trending with our pass rush and our pressures and our QB hurries. Uh, Josh Allen is a very mobile quarterback, so to get him rattled early was a very good thing and a good sighting. So overall, happy with the win. Huge, huge, huge victory against a very formidable opponent. To flip it onto the Buffalo side, um, Josh Allen just looks off this season. And Kyle, I'm going to be, be very honest with you. Um, we've been saying this for a couple of weeks now. There's just I don't know if it's play calling. I don't know if it's a slump from last season. I don't know if it's just a change in his confidence. I have no concept. But the point is, Josh Allen does not look good this year. Very inconsistent. Obviously, he's not able to put the ball in the spots as he was last year. He's kind of mistimed a couple of throws with his receiving core. And then we've talked about this since last year. They're not able to run the football. And them going down early was probably a terrible sign and a pretty bad example. But when they did run the ball, they averaged seven yards a carry. So it doesn't make sense as to why they decided to run the football in the second half when they were already down two-plus scores. So I'm just looking at this, and I'm saying Buffalo's coaching staff is definitely in question. Um, We made the number one defense in the NFL look like a fucking shit show, as we should, because this is what we do when we run the ball. We have one of the best, if not arguably the best, offensive line in the game when we run the ball through the trenches. So great play calling on Frank's part. Great job on the, on the offensive line. And, I mean, like I said, all three phases got it done, and I could not be happier. Huge win for the boys. I mean, Kevin, you kind of took it away from me there. I mean, I couldn't have laid it out any better than you have. The one thing that I'll say about Indianapolis in this game was that they finally ran the football. And we've been talking about this for not months, Kevin. We've been talking about this since last season. And – they finally fed Jonathan Taylor, and to me, I thought he should have gotten close to 40 carries in this game because he was single-handedly destroying that Buffalo defense by himself. When he got to the first half, got, got to the end of the first half, and already had three touchdowns, it was like, just keep on feeding the ball at that point because, I mean, why go away from something if it's working that effectively? And Frank continued to just pound the rock with Jonathan Taylor the entire day. I mean, Kevin, he had probably one of, if not the best performance from any running back in the NFL in that game against Buffalo. I mean, the guy had 185 yards rushing on the ground, four rushing touchdowns, and a receiving touchdown as well. He scored all the touchdowns for Indianapolis today. And I know that Carson Wentz didn't necessarily have the best game, but that was due into part just the elements that were in that game. It was raining throughout most of the game, and Frank definitely had an advantage 
against Buffalo in that regard because their offensive line dominated the line of scrimmage. They pushed back Buffalo consistently back the entire game. And then Jonathan Taylor, he just exploits those holes in the gaps, and he was able to make Buffalo pay for that. So one of the best games, if not the best game, that we've seen from Jonathan Taylor in his career with that performance against Buffalo. And I have to say, Kevin, I know Indianapolis is sitting at a 6-5 and record right now, but you look at the last couple games that they've lost. I mean, they've lost some see, some of these games in really tough fashion. I mean, this team could honestly be, what, an 8-3 and three team just because of some of the close losses that they've had throughout the season. This team is definitely making the turn, and I definitely think that they are becoming a playoff caliber team. It's just they have to keep running the football. You have... One of the best running backs in the NFL. You have the offensive line to go along with that. And unless somebody stops it, why not go away from it? Why go away from that? So, you know, not only did the offense perform well with Jonathan Taylor, I thought the defense from Indianapolis was outstanding. Josh Allen looked uncomfortable throughout the entire day and started off early. Once again, Buffalo has issues with these turnovers. We saw it against Jacksonville just a couple of weeks ago where they were turning the ball over frequently against Jacksonville. And then Indianapolis, same thing. They were able to force four turnovers in this game. Granted, two of them were, were from Josh Allen. But yeah, I mean, outside of the one touchdown that they got in the first quarter, I believe, Buffalo didn't score again, I think, until what, the fourth quarter? I think it was the third Actually, I, 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 I take that back. They scored in the second quarter, and then they scored in the fourth quarter. Yeah, so, But, yeah, to kind of reiterate the point that you made, yeah, Buffalo's had some major issues on the offensive side of the ball this year, and it is because they don't run the football, and Josh Allen has been, sub I won't say subpar, but he's been inconsistent this year. And I think it's because I think defenses are figuring out that, oh, my God, they can't run the football. All we got to do is drop seven, eight guys back and let him just run around in the pocket. And he's probably going to throw an errant pass or two. And that's where the interceptions come into play. We saw that. We saw that today. So overall, Indianapolis had a great performance against a really good team in Buffalo. Buffalo is looking, is looking like they're in some trouble here. So, you know, I don't know if this is a sign of things to come for Buffalo, but when you lose to the way that you lost against the Jaguars, only scoring six points against them, getting absolutely destroyed by Indianapolis, letting up 41 points at home. Yeah, Buffalo might be in some murky water here. And, I mean, now they're not even in first place of the AFC East anymore. Now the Patriots have taken that spot just because they've been on a roll the last month and a half. So, great performance from Indianapolis, though. And, yeah, with Buffalo, they might be in some trouble. Dude, all I know is uh, it's uh, it's weird because we're, we were talking about Josh Allen in an MVP caliber last season. The man was carving it up, him and Stephon Diggs, a great if not the best combination duo in football between receiver and quarterback outside of maybe Devontae Adams and Aaron Rodgers. And this season, it just Josh just looks all sorts between timing and his vision of the field and his decision-making. It just... He doesn't look like the same player, and he's well beyond a sophomore slump. He got his big contract extension last offseason, so it's not that he is looking or nervous or in, you know, insecure about potentially his, uh, 
his future with Buffalo. They know that he's the guy of the future. They know that he can make all the throws. He's got the arm strength. He's very mobile. But if his decision-making doesn't change, Buffalo may fall out of this AFC playoff race just because of how tight the divisions are and how tight the wildcard race is going to be. They went from the second seed today, and they fell to the sixth in literally one game. If they lose another game, they're out of the playoffs. Again, we still have about six weeks. But it's ass whoopings like this, Kyle. You know how this sport works, bro. That it deters a team and the motivation and the determination. It starts to falter, and you start looking for scapegoats. Is it their head coach? Is it Josh Allen? Is it the offensive line? Is it the defense? Like, we don't know what's going to happen. There's multiple factors with Buffalo that are of major concern. Obviously, the biggest one is that offense cannot run the football in any way, shape, or form. And we've said this, not not for this season. We've said that last season, even when they went to the AFC Championship game against the Chiefs last year. If they can't run the ball consistently, they are a one-dimensional offense, and it's putting a lot of pressure on Josh Allen to excel at a high level. And when he's not, you're seeing the offense sputter because Devin Singletary, Zach Moss, they are just not difference makers in running the football. And you can maybe even say that the offensive line is to blame to a certain extent as well, because they're just not opening up run lanes for those guys to exploit. But I have to kind of focus on their defense here. And it's something that I've noticed about Buffalo. Their run defense can be had. If we saw it against Tennessee a couple weeks back when Derrick Henry single-handedly destroyed them. And then we see Jonathan Taylor do what he did against that defense. And the thing is, with Buffalo, they struggle against a team that has a really good offensive line. Because with the way that Indianapolis was able to own that line of scrimmage against Buffalo, that's a major concern. Because their linebacking core and their secondary, they're pretty stout. But the probably the weakest link in that defense is their defensive line. So moving forward, Buffalo's going to have to figure out, okay, how do we stop these teams from just absolutely destroying us on the ground? Because the way that I see it right now, a lot of these teams, if they just run the ball 25, 30 times, they can make huge headways against that defense. And I mean, when you lose to Jacksonville the way that they did, you lose to Indianapolis the way that they did. I'm I'm saying like, they may be in trouble here. I don't know if they're going to fall out of the playoff race like you re, like you said. I think it's a little bit too premature to say that. I but said I'm, they could. I, I'm I, I'm saying this. I'm still of the mindset that they are still one of the be- one of the more well-rounded units in the NFL. But you combine the issues that they've been dealing with with Josh Allen turning the ball over. He's hasn't been as efficient as he was last year. The offense is sputtering because they're largely one-dimensional because they solely rely on Josh Allen to carry them. And their defense, despite the fact that they were the number one defense coming into this game, they gave up 41 points. And Jonathan Taylor single-handedly destroys them for almost 200 yards rushing. So, yeah, they've got some leaks here. They got to plug them up pretty quickly because we're basically heading into the last week of November going into December. I mean, this is where you got to be on your A game. 
And maybe it's performances like this that finally get them to wake up and get them playing at a much higher level. But that Jacksonville loss really kind of sticks in my craw, dude. That was a bad loss. And then you compound it with this. Yeah, Buffalo's in a little bit of trouble. I'm not going to say that they're that they could miss the playoff hunt here or they're going to be out of the playoff mix, but they got some issues that they need to fix. And it's really on Sean McDermott and that coaching staff to get this team right because going into December, you got to be on your A game. And if they're not, yeah, they could be in some trouble. But to transition to that one guy that destroyed the Bills single-handedly, that is Jonathan Taylor. Jonathan Taylor is now the NFL's leading running back as far as rushing yards go. Currently, he is sitting at over 1,100 yards rushing with the four touchdowns that he had on the ground and the one receiving touchdown. He has 13 touchdowns on the season. So, Kevin, to kick this to you, with Jonathan Taylor's impressive performance over Buffalo in Week 11, does this insert him into the NFL MVP discussion? I mean... What does MVP mean? We talk about this every year. Most valuable player. When Jonathan Taylor has a good game, 9 out of 10 times we win. When Jonathan Taylor has a bad game, because he has lack of touches, Frank, um, we lose. Without Jonathan Taylor, we do not win football games. The numbers support it. He's averaging 5.8 yards per carry. He's already eclipsed over 1,000 yards. He's got 13 touchdowns in terms of on the ground. He has less carries then Derrick Henry averages more yards per carry, and he still is 10 times better. Granted, he played an extra game, but he still today, after today's game, has almost 20 carries less than Derrick Henry and averages almost a yard and a half more than Derrick. I am going to go out on a limb and say, even if Derrick Henry wasn't hurt, he would still lead the league and be the best running back in the NFL. I'm at that point now. Because it's not, it's, it, it's not a, oh, I hope Jonathan gets two or three yards here. It's not a, oh, I hope Jonathan is going to get maybe five yards. If it's five yards or more, it's almost expected because of his patience in the backfield, his ability to go from literally from A to B and shoot through the gap. He can run outside the tackles. He can make you miss, and he can fucking run you over, okay? His pass catching ability has improved over the last year. He's also improved on his fumbling issue that he had in Wisconsin. And we know the three years he spent in Wisconsin, when he eclipsed 2,000 yards twice as probably the greatest collegiate running back we've ever seen, we know he can carry the load. And today showed it. You give him 25-plus carries a week like you've been given Derrick Henry, 25-plus, bro, this man's going to almost have 2,000 yards himself. He is a literal phenomenal running back he can also pass block and you literally have to scheme for him like no disrespect to our offense but when you when indianapolis comes into your house or you're going to play indy you're literally looking at one person and that's two eight how do we fucking stop this guy buffalo thought they could do it as the third or second best rush defense in the nfl it ain't happening next week's going to be another tough test obviously tampa's for the last two or three years has had one of the best rush defenses in the league and we're going to have to prove it over there, too. Listen, the numbers sit as follows. 193 total carries. 101, excuse me, 100, 
1,122 yards rushing, 5.8 yards per carry, 13 touchdowns on the ground. Two receiving touchdowns this year, 32 receptions, 332 receiving yards. He's averaging 10 yards per reception. The proof is in the pudding. It's tough to argue against that. It really is. And I'll say this. I think it definitely brings him into the discussion. I don't know how far it brings him into. Because I can't say that it, it just automatically shoots him to the top of the MVP discussion. I'm still of the mindset that there are some players that are ahead of him. Though, I got to start making the conversation about him. Because even though that the Colts are sitting at a 6-5 and five record, you take Jonathan Taylor off this team, this team is probably at best three and eight or four and seven. This team would not be six and five without Jonathan Taylor. That's how impactful he is to this team. And when I look at Jonathan Taylor's effectiveness, it is really due into part the fact that that offensive line with the Colts is arguably the best offensive line in the league. But even despite that, Kevin, did you see what he did to Micah Hyde today when he scored that touchdown? I think it was before the end of the first half. I mean, that stiff arm that he threw on Micah Hyde, a solid NFL defensive veteran, literally got thrown to the ground by Jonathan Taylor. I mean, this dude's a beast. He can break tackles. He can extend plays after first contact. And you combine that with the fact that he is getting these amazing run lanes thanks to the offensive line that he has. He's having a phenomenal year. I think he's probably going to finish somewhere around, what, you got six games left? Probably somewhere around 1,800 yards rushing, possibly even 1,900. And if Frank Reich keeps the play calls and just keeps feeding Jonathan Taylor, I could see him finishing with 20 rushing touchdowns this season. I really could. I mean, the guy had five today against Buffalo. Four rushing, yeah. Excuse me. Well, five overall, excuse me. But still, this dude is a machine. Keep feeding him the rock, and good things will happen unless you come up against a team that stops him. Which, up until this point, the only person that has really kind of slowed him down is Frank Reich with the play calling. Outside of that, when he's been given the opportunities, he is making the most of it, and he is starting to become... You can start making a case that he is right alongside Derrick Henry as one of the best running backs in the NFL. I'm still going to give the edge to Derrick Henry just because I think Derrick Henry is an absolute machine. One but of the why? best running backs. But why? It's, but it's because they feed him the rock. Exactly. With Jonathan the Taylor. averages are 10 yeah. times higher, though. It, That's what's sad. I get that. But my point is, is that I think Frank Reich can no longer avoid the fact that he's got a top five, arguably top three running back right now. And I think if they just keep feeding him the ball, I think Indianapolis will continue to win. And who knows? If if Tennessee keeps falling off at this point, you could possibly get back into the top of the AFC South. Granted, you got six weeks to do it. But if Jonathan Taylor's doing what he did against Buffalo, if he does even if he does half of what he did against Buffalo. It's still a winning formula in, in my book. So 
Yeah, I'd, I'd say at this point that Jonathan Taylor definitely deserves to be in the MVP conversation. I think it'd be disrespectful if he wasn't. Hey, we'll just have to see what happens at the end of the year because we all know that it becomes a little bit more political. If your record doesn't reflect, then you're not going to get it. Well, I mean, Derrick Henry had over 2,000 yards rushing last season and still didn't get the MVP. And he was clearly the most impactful player for any team that the NFL had to offer last year. And and he didn't even get the MVP. It's really kind of getting to the point now where it just feels like the MVP is just going to go to a quarterback. It just feels like that's like the automatic pick. Unless you have somebody that has a ridiculous year, you know, at a different spot. Because I don't even remember, who was the last, like, non-quarterback to win an MVP? Was it Adrian Peterson? It's been a while. I think so. It's been a while. And that was, what, 10 years ago? Yeah, I mean, I'm looking that up right now. It's actually a good question. Because... Mostly that MVP discussion has been dominated by quarterbacks. So, I mean, really the last couple of years has been like Patrick Mahomes, Lamar Jackson, Aaron Rodgers. I mean, those are just like the last three in particular. But I mean, Derrick Henry. Adrian Peterson in 2012, yeah. Yeah, it was damn near 10 years ago. So, you know, I mean, if Jonathan Taylor keeps this up, I mean, he could definitely make a case. But do I think that he wins it if he possibly goes for 2,000 yards rushing no, no, because I think by and large, I think it's going to go to a quarterback. But when you look across the landscape of quarterbacks right now, who's really the guy out of that position that you would say is at the top of that discussion? I mean, Aaron Rodgers have a good season. Kyler Murray was in that like that top part of the discussion, but he's missed the last three games because he's been hurt. So I think he's kind of out. You could maybe say Brady, but Brady's had two losses against the Saints and the Washington football team in the last three weeks. So, actually, yeah, yeah, in the last three weeks because they had the bye week. But I'm just saying, you know, if Jonathan Taylor continues to dominate defenses like this, like he did against Buffalo, it's unlikely that he's going to win it, but I can't rule out that he's going to make a really good case for it. I'll kind of just yeah. leave it. I'll leave it at that just because, I mean, Jonathan, I got to say props to you, my guy. You got me 53 points on fantasy today. So Big if you're facts. watching this, 53 points, dude, that's insane. I mean, no wonder why he got the game ball at the end uh, back in the locker room after that just devastating performance against the head against the Buffalo Bills defense. I mean, Buffalo's going to be – Buffalo's gonna have to regroup though after that type of beating though. That that was not a that was not a performance that you wanted to have in front of your home crowd. And, and look, the Colts got revenge from last year's playoff game, and I mean they did it in a big way. So you know, shout out to the Colts. Could they get back to the top? Could they get back into the race for the AFC South? Time will tell in that regard. But dominating performance against the Buffalo Bills today, and I think it definitely reserve, deserves respect. So with that said, we're going to transition into our second featured topic uh, from the Sunday slate, and that is going to be the Kansas City Chiefs and the Dallas Cowboys game. So the Chiefs defeated the Cowboys by the score of 19-9. to It was largely a defensive battle from beginning to end, but the Chiefs come out victorious. They have now won four straight games. They have reclaimed the top spot in the AFC West, and 
based on the competition that they're dealing with in their own division. They're actually extending their lead in that division. The Cowboys, they came into this game against KC without Amari Cooper. He tested positive this weekend before the game, and then C.D. Lamb went out after he sustained what I believe to be was an ankle injury right before the end of the first half. Actually, I take that back. It was a concussion. I think it was a concussion that he suffered right before halftime. But Kevin, to kick this to you, just how impressive was this win for KC over Dallas? I'm looking at it and I'm saying I'm, I'm saying it's pretty big, right? And the reason I'm saying it's a really big win is because the defense won this game. We have been saying for the last month and change, maybe even more, that the Chiefs' biggest weakness, aside from Patrick Mahomes and the offense's turnover issues, is that the defense can't stop anybody. They sacked Dak Prescott five times today. They forced two interceptions. So if you, if you ask me, the defense finally heard what everyone has been saying, and they've stepped it the hell up. Because my goodness, to keep one of the high-powered offenses to nine total points, granted, Amari Cooper was out. I completely understand that. I also understand that CeeDee Lamb left the game in the second half. But as a unit, to continue to press on that gas pedal and step on the neck metaphorically and keep that going, I say that that speaks volumes of Steve Spagnola and the group of veterans that they have. Chris Jones is an absolute monster, and he makes a very big difference when he is healthy and on that defense. So I'm just going to go out and say it. I'm not going to say that the Chiefs are back, but man, are they trending in the right direction because they literally are, I think they now lead the division in the AFC West. If I'm not mistaken, at seven and four, they went from last place a month ago back to first. They're on a four game win streak. It's insane. Patrick Mahomes is doing what he needs to do. They're running the football. They're getting stops on the defensive side of the ball. And I think that that is the successful formula to go out and win in this league. The Chiefs have recollected themselves, and they found their identity. They've beaten some good teams over the last few weeks. And I think that that has given them not only confidence, but that has just shown them that, wait a minute. It's like, it's like when you ask yourself, like, who are you? Like, who are we? Like, when you get yourself hyped before a game. They reminded themselves they're the goddamn Kansas City Chiefs. They've reminded themselves that they're a top three team in the AFC over the last four years, or three years. They reminded themselves that they went to the Super Bowl two years back-to-back, almost three. Patrick Mahomes is Patrick Mahomes, but this defense is the key and will remain to be the key of the success of this team. Because, granted, I understand that the Chiefs didn't go out there and score a shit ton of points. It was mainly kind of like a couple of field goals here and there, but I'm looking at it and I'm saying, well, it wasn't a a proud and, and, and beautiful or sexy win, but they got it done. Pat didn't throw any touchdowns, and he turned the ball over. But when you hand the rock to Edward Tulare, who's now healthy, and the defense is shutting out, or, you know, not shutting out, but, you know, putting a, putting a beating on Dallas the way that they did, I feel like that was, that was a formula to win, and they did exactly what they needed to. And I think that this is just going to continue to give them confidence go forward. And, man, they might fuck around and get a high seed in this AFC playoff if Buffalo's collapse today. I'm still a little bit iffy on KC. And it's crazy that I still kind of feel that way because they beat one of the best teams in the NFL in the Dallas Cowboys. But the reason why that I'm still a little bit skittish on KC this season is because, yes, they're winning these games, but they're winning these games in a very ugly fashion. 
I mean, we're only a couple weeks removed from Kansas City almost losing to Daniel Jones and the Giants at home. And then the week after that, you almost lose to a Jordan Love-led Green Bay Packers team that only scored seven points, and you only beat them by six. Now, granted, they beat Dallas by 10, which on paper you would think, okay, that's not too bad. But they only scored 19 points. And Dallas's defense has not been consistently good this season. They've had their high marks, specifically with Trayvon Diggs and the amount of interceptions that he's accruing this season. And Micah Parsons as well, one of the best rookies defensively in the NFL. I believe he almost has 10 sacks in the season already. But outside of that, outside of the playmakers that they had, this is a defense that you can expose. And I just think that Casey wasn't able to do that today. And it really kind of reiterates the point with their offense. Yeah, they got it together against the Raiders last week when they hung up 41 points and Patrick Mahomes had five touchdowns and 400 yards passing. Great performance. But the main thing that I've been looking for with KC since their subpar start is consistency. I'm not saying that they need to go out and score 40 points, but I'd like to see them win these games in a pretty convincing fashion. And I haven't really seen that from them, even despite the fact they are still winning games. It's a four-game win streak. You know, the fact, the fact is that they're at the top of the AFC West. I will give them credit for that. But when you look at the fact that Dallas did not have Amari Cooper in this game, CeeDee Lamb did not come back in the second half after sustaining a concussion, and you only beat them by 10 points, and you only scored 19 points. So there's a lot of room for... There's a lot of room for improvement for Casey as far as I'm concerned. The defense, they played phenomenal today. Really, the standout defensively for Casey was Legereus Sneed. He played a phenomenal game. He was one of their more aggressive defensive backs that they have in their secondary. I also thought uh, Charvarius Ward had a really good game defensively for Casey. I mean, the defense came to play against Dallas, and the fact is that, that they held Tony Pollard and Ezekiel Elliott to a combined 80 to 85 yards rushing. That was a huge boost defensively for KC. The fact that you could limit both of them to under 100 yards combined. That was a huge win as far as I'm concerned. And granted, you know, with Dak missing his targets and CD in the second half and Amari missing the game entirely, KC had a pretty easy time trying to contain Michael Gallup and... Dalton Schultz. Those were really the only targets that Dak was throwing to. But, you know, with KC, I'll give them credit. They got the win over Dallas. Dallas is still one of the best teams in the NFL, so good on KC with that. But I'm still a little bit iffy on the Chiefs just because I got to see them start winning these games in a more convincing fashion. Granted, four-game win streak is fine. I'll give them that. But there's still some issues on this team that they need to work on. And it needs to come on the offensive side of the ball. And that is something that I can't believe I'm actually saying. Because a lot of the issues that this team has been dealing with over the last couple of years is not on that side of the ball. It's been on the defensive side of the ball. But you hold Dallas at nine points. Good on you. I can't say anything bad about them. They came to play today. But I got to see a little bit more consistency from Patrick Mahomes. And he's been up and down to say the least this season. But good win for Casey though. I will give them credit for that. Yeah. I mean, it, it's like we talk about all the time, right? Teams have to 
kind of find themselves throughout the season. It's like a journey through life. Like you have your ups and your downs like anything else. But their defense was absolutely abysmal the first two months of the year. And I mean like awful. So I just see it as when that was putting the pressure on Pat and he was constantly having to make those plays and having to play catch-up and knowing that all this lead might not freaking be here if I don't get a touchdown here. Did he have an interception today? Yes. Dallas's defense is known for creating turnovers, so it's not necessarily a surprise. But why I say that I think Kansas City is trending the direction to kind of be back or, you know, like kind of re-identify themselves as, you know, the team to be is because the weakest link is now being corrected. And I really believe that somewhere down the line that because that is being corrected, that Pat will start to gain his confidence back. They will start to get their rhythm going. Clyde Edwards-Hilaire has now come back. Josh Gordon is being more and more inserted into this offense. Tyreek Hill is obviously one of the best receivers in the game right now. So with time, like, like we always say, a winning streak like this is very good for confidence. And at the timing that it's, this, is, this is having right now, if it continues, I don't necessarily know how they're going to be halted if their defense is going to continue to play this good. Well, I mean, I'm looking at their schedule right now, and it does actually favor them pretty well throughout the next month or so because they play the Broncos at home. Um, they play them, I, I think, next week. I think it's the, they may have a bye week, excuse me. But um, that's a favorable game for them um, in the next game that they play. They play the Raiders after that at home. Then they go to L.A. to play the Chargers, and I think that's definitely a winnable game for them. They play the Steelers, and then they play the Bengals. So when I look at the upcoming schedule, the only team that I'm really kind of looking at that could really kind of present them a challenge, oh my God, maybe the Chargers? Because I think they'll be able to beat the Broncos. The Raiders have been just been dealing Up with Up and the, down. The, yeah, I, I think the the off-the-field issues have finally caught up with the Raiders. I think it's just been too much to bear for them this season. Because I don't think the Steelers are going to be able to beat them. Not with the up-and-down offense that we've seen from Big Ben and that side of the ball with them. And the Bengals, the Bengals are a still relatively young team. And I just don't have faith that Joe Burrow is going to be the guy to outsling Patrick Mahomes. Even despite the fact that the Bengals are home that game. So... Really, I mean, it's in favor of KC moving forward here. And Kevin, I remember you got on to me. This was a couple of weeks back when when I was saying that I thought that KC would finish like twelve and five, eleven and six. Yeah, well, mean my words. I I mean, but I I think you were coming from a solid place though at that time because before this four game winning streak, they really looked out of sorts offensively. They could not get it going whatsoever. Defensively. Leaky is an understatement. And it just seemed like the, the team just wasn't, it just wasn't in gear. But, you know, I think they, they found somewhat of a formula here to work with. You know, granted that Raiders performance is probably the best performance that they've had in what? A month? Yeah. The, probably the best performance that they had before that was against maybe Washington. And even that game was still kind of up and that down. That was more for them. of a second. That was a second half resurgence too. That wasn't yeah, necessarily but, but, a complete game. But, but, but it's like for sixty minutes, I have not seen this team dominate. Right. And it's just, you know, we're getting into December, so 
you know, maybe they're going to they're going to round into form. And there are some teams where you, you look at the schedule and say, yeah, we could definitely continue this winning streak that we've been on. And I mean, to be honest with you, Kevin, they can win all these games. There's not one game I look here and say, yeah, they're going to lose that game. These are all winnable games here on out, because I think the only game that they might struggle in is against the Chargers. Outside of that, they play the Broncos twice, the Bengals, the Steelers, and the Raiders. Those are winnable games. Yeah. So. Says, this is going to be a toughie. Or, you know, obviously divisional games are always going to be challenging because division rivals tend to play each other very tough. But they're all winnable games, like you said. But but they've gotten through the gauntlet of their schedule. They've already played the Titans. They already played the Packers. They played the Cowboys. And those are really the Bills. Yeah. Those were the three or four teams that really were going to give KC some issues. But I'm telling you right now, if they win out from here until January 9th, that's their last game against uh, the Broncos in Week 17. I mean, to be honest with you, Kev, they could finish the season on a six uh, on a 10-game winning streak. I mean, they could finish 13-4. and four. I think they may lose one, but I don't think they're, they're going to lose more than two games. I don't see them unless they really struggle offensively where that offense is just inconsistent or sputtering. I don't see them losing more than two games here. Now, honestly, if they lose two games, I kind of be surprised because these teams don't really strike me as a team that could really run it with KC. If you know what I mean? Yeah, I agree completely. There's not really a team that's going to really like you would circle that. You'd say, this is going to be a this is going to be a good game. Again, I'm not. We're, we are not taking away from the competitiveness of Justin Herbert and Derek Carr and their teams. You know, we just the way that Kansas City has been playing the last month has been very similar to Kansas City of the past. Not as offensively consistent, but as a cohesive unit in all three phases. It looks like they're getting back to the form that we are all accustomed to. Yeah, it's just. I think they just need to kind of figure out what's going on with the offense. But that's something that they can work on. If that's the one thing that's been really st- struggling the last what the last month or so, yeah. All they got to do is is figure out some good matchups against, you know, those defensive coverages that they're going up against. And, and the thing is, we saw it against the Dallas, we saw it against Dallas that Dallas was not going to get beat on the deep ball today. They had those two safeties playing back deep. And they weren't going to allow anything to beat them over the top. Everything that that Casey did was 10 to 15 yards. And that was it. And I, I think that's what you're going to have to go with. Because teams have made the adjustments against them. And honestly, I would like them to see the run the football more. Just because, you know, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire is back in the lineup. Darrell Williams is a solid number two. I mean, we saw him pop off against the Raiders in that beatdown against Vegas uh, last week. And I think you got to give those guys more touches. I think if Casey wants to make the adjustment to be a more physical team, they got to give those guys some chances. And I do believe that their offensive line, when given the opportunity, can thrive in that department. But it really comes to the system that Andy Reid and Eric Bieniemy are running this year. And still... It's predominantly pass heavy. It's a lot of RPO. It's not of it's not a lot of north and south running with the football. 
It's not like they have a single guy in the backfield and Pat's just handing the ball off to either Edwards Hilaire or Daryl Williams. I would like them to do that more often just to kind of give their def- give opposing defenses a look to respect. But with the system that Andy Reid and Eric Bieniemy run, I just don't really see that the case. It's going to be a lot of RPO, and you might get a couple touches where you're running north-south, but I that's just the system that they run. But if they want to become a more gritty team, I think they need to run the football. And I think that they have the personnel to do it. It's just whether or not that they actually go out and have a decent set playbook for those guys. It just... You know, we'll see. You know, with Jonathan Taylor with the Colts, took them a year and a half to kind of finally figure it out. It's like, holy shit, we got a really good guy back there. I'm not saying that Clyde Edwards-Hilaire is on the same level as Jonathan Taylor, but you give him some chances, who knows? I'm saying, like, you have a good running back back there, use him. And Clyde Edwards-Hilaire is a serviceable running back, and it was it was good to see him back in the lineup against Dallas, because I know he had missed the, what, last month and a half? Yeah, with so, his MCL sprain or whatever it is that yeah, he had. So, and he scored a touchdown. Granted, he should not have been called on that taunting penalty. That was a ridiculous call. He, I mean, he pointed at him. It's stupid, man. I'm getting I, tired I, of this stupid I, crap. I, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, like, literally, like, when they show these replays, they should literally just throw a censored tag over the actual insult or the actual, like, gesture he just pointed at him, like as he was running into the end zone. I mean, Tyreek Hill used to throw up the deuces when he was burning past guys and never got it's, called. It's never, it's never been that serious. But yeah. um, I don't want to continue to get hung up on this particular one game. I actually had a funny comment. Um, it's funny how the two best quarterbacks in the league struggle to run the football in Buffalo and Kansas City. I don't know. I don't know what it is with guys with big arms. I just feel like they can outthrow everybody. But it's just weird. Yeah. And, and, you know, coming into the game, I mean, Patrick Mahomes, Dak Prescott, that's a that's a big quarterback matchup. And kind of similar to the Aaron Rodgers-Russell Wilson matchup that we had last week, didn't really come through. You know, both of those games ended up being more defensive battle games. I mean, the Packers beat Seattle last week 17 to nothing, and this one was 19 to 9. And this was this was the game of the week, without a doubt. And you know, granted the Chiefs did get the win, but not a lot of like big highlights from this game. But I don't I as far as Casey's concerned, they don't care. As long as they got the dub, that's the only thing that they care about. Fact. So it is what it is. But with that said, we're gonna transition into our last featured game from the Sunday slate, and that is gonna be the Green Bay Packers and the Minnesota Vikings game. So the Vikings beat the Green Bay Packers by the score of 34 to 31. The Vikings improved to 5 and 5 on the season. They get back to a 500 record. And probably their biggest win of the season coming up against Green Bay. Green Bay is I had them as the number 1 team in our power rankings last week after week 10 had finished. And despite the fact that Aaron Rodgers threw for four touchdowns in this game, almost put up 400 yards passing. Minnesota was able to march down the field for a late game-winning field goal to give them the win over their division rival in the Packers. So, Kevin, to kick the question to you, does this win for the Vikings keep their playoff hopes alive moving forward? 
I think so. We have discussed this a number of times on a number of segments and episodes in which we believe that the Vikings record does not reflect their ability to play football. We know that they've had so many games to where they just fell short or it was because they lost to a last second field goal. Not to te- not to say that, you know, that doesn't mean that, you know, you didn't deserve to lose because obviously you were put in that situation to lose in the first place. But overall, the Minnesota Vikings are definitely not a 5 and 5 football team. Kirk Cousins is playing, I'm going to say it, MVP caliber football because he is also alongside Carson Wentz to be the only two quarterbacks to have less than five interceptions or something of that nature. Um, And he went out and he diced up this Green Bay defense. He was sacked twice, but 341 for almost 10 yards per attempt and three total touchdowns with a passer rating of 128.4. Mind you, Green Bay doesn't have the greatest defense in the world. I understand that. But a divisional game the way that this was and how he found a way to dice up this entire defense from beginning to end, it was legitimately a shootout. I mean, if you look at it, the box score, aside from the first quarter where it was 3-9, to 7-7, 7-7, 14-11. They were going back and forth the entire game, and it came down to a literal last-second field goal, except they were on the winning side this time. And I think that that speaks volume to the character that Mike Zimmer has this team going into the locker room. Or Mike Zimmer, man, I can't—I always forget um, his name for whatever reason. Um, they, they were very, very assertive in the run game. Granted, Dalvin Cook didn't really have the greatest games, but they didn't want to go away from it. They kept the defense honest. 22 carries for 86 yards and a touchdown. And Justin Jefferson, Adam Thielen, you can make the argument. Man, that, that could be the best wide receiver tandem in the league. But Jay Jettas, man, holy shit. Justin Jefferson went off for 169 yards and two touchdowns, and he averaged 21 yards per reception. That is outrageously incredible. So I really think that this Minnesota team can make a run. However, their biggest challenge is going to be their defense. As I just stated, bringing it into the Green Bay side, Aaron Rodgers was able to – you know, like the, the salt guy that he was able to dice it up. Salt you know what bay. I'm saying? Salt He was able to, uh, you know, carve up the chicken and carve up the meat, whatever it is he was cutting up that day. Hope of my God, Aaron Rodgers went off for 385 for four touchdowns, and his passer rating was 148.4. There was no defense in sight today, outside from each team getting a couple of sacks. Holy shit. I mean, like Aaron and Kirk were going shot for shot. Both offenses looked great. But again, the only way Minnesota is going to lose is the defense being incapable of stopping the opposing offense. If you're putting the weight on Kirk's shoulders, he is, he's showing you point blank he can do it. This isn't the Kirk Cousins of old who is one game have three touchdowns and have a perfect passer rating and the next have four interceptions. No, 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 no. Kirk Cousins is having himself a damn year. And if I'm not mistaken, Kirk Cousins has – 21 touchdowns and two interceptions this season and just under 3,000 passing yards. So Kirk Cousins is playing damn good football. So I want to say kudos to them. Shout out to my Vikings fans, the friends that I do have. You know, I got Darian and Trevin and Kevin and, and Jared and a couple of other people. I don't know why I know so many Vikings fans, but I think that this speaks volumes to this team. I think Kirk Cousins is putting this team in a position to win. And, oh, man, if they can make a run, I think it's going to be exciting to see what the NFC turns out to be. I mean, Kevin, I don't really know what else to add to it. But just to kind of dive into the game itself, 
this was a phenomenal performance. I thought from both teams offensively, because when I look at just the stats to go along with that, I mean, both teams were over 50% with their third down efficiency today. Green Bay was 7 for 11, and Minnesota was 9 of 13. So offensively, both teams were moving up and down the field at will against opposing defenses. But this is one of those games where it's really kind of, it kind of sucks to see one team take the L just because more than likely they did enough to probably win the game, but the Vikings were able to get that last second field goal to give them the win over Green Bay. I mean, just to kind of hit on the points that you were making, I mean, Kirk Cousins is having a phenomenal year. This is not like what he was doing back in his Washington days where he was playing inconsistent or up and down throughout large stretches of his tenure there. And this is by far his best year that I've seen him play personally. The guy is dicing up defenses left and right on a consistent basis. And you know what? When you've got targets like Justin Jefferson and Adam Thielen to throw to, life is a lot easier compared to not having those guys. I mean, Justin Jefferson, like you mentioned, I mean, you want to talk about a career day. I mean, going over 160 yards receiving and having two touchdowns, just a phenomenal day. I mean, even Adam Thielen, granted he didn't have the day that Justin Jefferson had, but still a productive day from Adam Thielen. And, you know, when I look at Minnesota overall, even though that they are a 5-5 and team, I still am of the mindset that this is a playoff caliber team. It's just like you mentioned, though. Can that defense hold up? I remember I made an argument with Casey about a month ago when they were kind of in their slide. And I was of the mindset if that Casey defense could hold opposing offenses to under 25 points a game, that that could be probably the best case scenario for them to win games. And I think with Minnesota... I think that same rule applies to them because their defense is just not that good. I mean, granted, you're going up against Aaron Rodgers, the former MVP from last year. And I mean, Rodgers gave it to him today. There's no other way to say it. But they did enough to get Green Bay the L and get Minnesota the win. And when I look at the Vikings' upcoming schedule, I see some winnable games here. They play the 49ers next week. They play the Lions after that. And then they play the Steelers and the Bears. Those next four games are all winnable games for the Vikings. Granted, it will get more difficult towards the end of the season because they have to play the Rams and the Packers before the end of the year. But the Minnesota Vikings, this next month is absolutely pivotal for them. There are some winnable games here. And if they just play their cards right and they play up to their competition and not down to it, they should win these next four games. I mean... Going into that Rams matchup at the end of the year, you'd be sitting at 9-5 and five, you win these next four games that they have on their slate. So, you know, Minnesota, it, they're in control of their own destiny right now. And with the way that Kirk Cousins has been playing, I would like to assume that it would continue. But it, it's like you said, Kevin, that main issue is by far and away the defense. And if that defense cannot hold opposing offenses to under 25 points a game, it's going to be a tough road for Minnesota moving forward, but a great win against Green Bay. I mean, arguably I had them as the number one team in our power rankings last week. And I don't know really what more you could ask. I mean, Kirk balled out today. Justin Jefferson balled out today. And, you know, that's why the Vikings are still sitting in a, you know, they could be sitting in a better place than five and five, but 
this team definitely has the pieces to move forward to get to a playoff berth. I'm definitely of that mindset, though. Yeah, and if it wasn't for the fact that the NFC is legitimately the most competitive conference this yeah. year, and I, we're starting to get to that point where we can't say that anymore because AFC teams like the Colts and the Chiefs are starting to turn it around to where they're trying to make it a competitive division and, and or conference. Uh, but obviously the power teams lie within the NFC. That's probably the only reason why I would say Minnesota falls short this year, just because the top four or five seeds are in the damn NFC. So, I mean, at that point, we, I, again, I don't want to get carried away, but happy for Minnesota. Again, it shows so much that they can do it, that they can compete. And I, I don't think Kirk Cousins is getting enough shine, man. I really want to circle back on that. I really want to get on that train of we got to put some respect. He's in the last year of that fully guaranteed deal. Obviously, their head coach and Mike Zimmer, Zimmerman. What is it, Kyle? It's, my, it's Mike Zimmer. Zimmer. It is Mike Zimmer. There's no, there's no, there's no man at the end. Yeah, I'm used to the baseball player, Ryan Zimmerman, that played for the Nationals a few years back. But anyway, neither here nor there. Um, I think that him being on the hot seat and his inconsistency at his play calling, mind you, he's always been known for the defensive portion of the team, which is not looking good. But there's, there's, there must be something good in that locker room that he's doing, something that he's got to be saying to this team for them to be putting it together and then doing what they just did to the Green Bay Packers. Again, one of the best teams in the NFL. So, also one thing to circle before we transition into our honorable mentions, Aaron Rodgers was hurt at the end of this game. They're saying something about turf toe. They interviewed him after the game. He's saying it's worse than turf toe and that he was in massive pain throughout the second half of that game. So, it is something to keep an eye on. I believe Green Bay has a bye coming up. So, hopefully he'll be able to kind of heal over the next two weeks and see what they can do. But we all know that turf toe can be a bit to deal with. Pat Mahomes had to deal with it last year. So, Something to keep an eye on and a monitor for Green Bay go forward. You worried about Green Bay? I don't want to say worried. Obviously, this was a shootout. So this, if anything, this just shows that, you know, they got to tighten up on defense. They have the playmakers to do so. Can't blame Aaron for anything. And you sure as shit can't blame the head coach because LaFleur's been damn near perfect his last, what, two seasons since being inserted into this position. But I will say that injury can really fuck up a whole season for somebody. Because we all know if it gets worse, he's going to be damn near immobilized completely. I wouldn't say immobilized. It's going to be a lingering issue, though, because I've played through turf toe before. And it's one where, hey, bro, you got to gut it out. Granted, it's going to hurt. And you just got to gut up and you just got to find a way to get through it. Granted, you know, he's a quarterback. Be one thing if he was a receiver, a running back, where you know you're constantly cutting and you're trying to get separation from somebody. But with him, he could largely just revert back to a pocket passer. I mean, granted, you know he's still going to be feeling pressure on that toe. There's no doubt about it. But I'd be more concerned if it was like Devonte Adams had turf toe, or you know Aaron Jones or AJ Dillon. But with with Rogers, that's something that he can manage. Granted, I know it's going to be painful, but, you know, throw some bio the re- on there. The, the yeah. reason why I say that is because Bakatiari is hurt, their backup tackle is hurt, and their third string or second string had to move over to Bakatiari's guard position. So they're thin at the offensive line right now. So if Aaron's got to continue to be mobile and have to roll out and do these things, he's getting up there in age, it takes one hit, it takes one trip up to make that 10 times worse, to make that pain significantly different. 
That's why I'm saying that this is something to monitor because Aaron's offensive line seems to be depleting at the worst possible time of the season. And, I mean, I'm looking at the Packers' schedule right now. They play the Rams next week. They play the Bears after that, which that'll be that'll be a win. That'll be a dub. And then they play the Ravens after that. So next two out of three games for them are competitive. There's no doubt about it. But by and large, Green Bay still owns this division. Yeah. I'm not worried. I'm not worried about them losing the division. They no, might no, no, lose, no. They might lose a game here or two there, but no, I'm not worried about Green Bay. I still am of the mindset that Green Bay is one of the best teams in the NFL. And you lost by three points in a shootout. Happens to the best of us, bro. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose them. It, it is what it is. But I'm, I'm still the mindset that once the Packers get Aaron Jones back, I think he had like a mild MCL sprain last yeah. week. He'll be fine. But dude, that one-two combo punch that they have with Dylan, and, Dylan Jones. And, and Aaron Jones, it's a really good tandem that they have back there. And, and getting into the months of December and January, you're definitely going to need those two guys to perform. And so far... A.J. Dillon has been playing phenomenal football when given the opportunities. I mean, he will just mow people over. He's a much more physical back than Aaron Jones. Aaron Jones is a little bit more, he's more of a finesse type running back, kind of more of a speedster, where Dillon is really kind of like that thunder part to that thunder-lightning combo. But Absolutely. No, Green Bay will be fine. I don't, I'm not worried about that moving forward. But with that said, you guys, we're going to transition into our honorable mentions. Very similar to what we've done in the past. Kevin and I will make a mention of what team we think deserves some shine that were not in our featured topics that we went over in the earlier part of the episode. So, Kevin, to kick it to you, who do you have as your honorable mention from week 11? I'm literally going to say this. It's Philadelphia Eagles. For the third or fourth consecutive game, they have dominated the line of scrimmage, and they have run the football down every single opponent of theirs throats. The New Orleans Saints were ranked the number one rush defense in the NFL. Philadelphia dropped 242 total rushing yards between basically three players. Obviously, Boston Scott had a couple of carries here and there, but Miles Sanders returned from IR. He had 94 yards. He did have a fumble, which screwed me in fantasy, but we're not going to get into that. Jalen Hurts carried the way with 69 yards and three rushing scores. And then Jordan Howard continued his dominance with 63 total yards. So again, running the football seems to just have an effective way for teams to win. Kyle, I don't know what it is. It's almost like it makes sense. And it's like, if you run the ball, the defense gets scared that you're going to run it. So then when you fake that you run that you can, I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't know football or anything, but it just seems like that's just a common sense formula for victory. But once again, um, I feel that Philadelphia is, is, is finding a way to turn around. They're finding their identity. Nick Sirianni is making some better decisions in the play calling. Uh, Jalen Hurts still has to make some improvements as an overall quarterback. It seems that he is really focalized solely on this RPO, which is turning into a, a concern for me. He's making some okay throws, but he is missing some receivers downfield that are open. I feel that he needs to continue to develop as a passer. But they beat a good team in the Saints. Trevor Simeon had an off night. I get. I think the Philadelphia Eagles defense really found a way to make pressure, and, and they found a way to, to make his life a living hell. Kamara did not play in this game, and the Saints did find a way to come back. So, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say that they have found a way to fix all of their problems, but to turn it around and go 5-6, and six, 
They got their first victory at home. Shout out to uh, Isabel's cousin Dom and his dad Gene um, and, uh, and and their cousin Rocco. They were at that game. I know that was an amazing game for them to see the first victory at the link for the season. So shout out to them. Um, but big, big, big win for Philly. 242 yards in the ground, man. That speaks volumes of a team. I think that was a great win for them. DJ, drop that beat real quick. Oh, God. What do you want, Kyle? Yes, we are back. Yes, the New England Patriots. Granted, I know their game was on Thursday, but they are my honorable mention for Week 11 in the NFL. They held the Atlanta Falcons to a shutout through a goose egg. And in their last three games... They have a combined 13 points allowed. And, Kevin, they're on a five-game winning streak. And with the Bills losing to the Indianapolis Colts in Week 11, they are now back at the top of the AFC East. And you just love to see it. Because here's the thing. They started the season not too good. You know, they got off to a 2-4 and start. Mack was inconsistent. And the defense was giving up points. But Bill Belichick and the coaching staff have really gotten it together. And they have put a well-rounded unit together where Mac Jones has been playing really good football of late. The run game has been consistent with Damian Harris, Ramondre Stevenson, and Brandon Bolden. And you're getting all of your wideouts involved. Even Nikhil Harry is getting involved in the passing game. Granted, he might get a couple of receptions here and there, but he is actually Go. being a bigger factor as far as his run blocking goes as a wide receiver, which is something that he has been utilized very well so far this year. So you look at the, the Patriots overall, just absolute domination against the Falcons, where they were able to get a consistent pass rush against the Falcons the entire night. They had a decent performance from the offense. But really, it was the defense that carried them to that win over the Atlanta Falcons. And, you know, you combine that with the fact that they've only given up 13 points as a defense in their last three games, which is like, which like averages out to like five and a third points per game in the last three games allowed. It's tough to beat, Kevin. That's really tough to beat. And I'm of the mindset that if Casey, I mean, not Casey, if New England beats Tennessee next week, they would actually be tied at the top of the AFC overall. And that would be dependent on whether or not Casey wins next week too. I mean, who would have thought a month and a half ago, we'd be sitting here now that the New England Patriots, the evil empire has come back and they are back to rain havoc on the NFL. I'm absolutely here for it. Greg, if you're listening to this, Kevin told me what you were talking about earlier. And I told Kevin that I was going to be absolutely insufferable. Granted, I, I'm not. I should have the cigar out. I don't have the cigars with me, but Kevin, we're back, man. We're back. Love to see Greg. You. This, Greg, see this it. is all your fault. Greg, this is all your fault. Literally, I'm dumb. Greg is a friend of ours that worked at Dick's Sporting Goods with us a few years back. Uh, Greg is a Buffalo Bills fan. Obviously, Kyle is a New England Patriot fan. So they went at it every day at work, back and forth. This is when the Bills were, like, very, 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 very bad. And obviously, the Patriots were winning Super Bowls left and right, like changing underwear. So it was fun banter for them going back and forth uh, at work every other day. So I was texting Greg because, obviously, the Colts played the Bills. 
we were going back and forth, just jibber-jabber. Obviously, the, the Colts just dominated from beginning to end, so we were just kind of going over the game as a whole. And Greg listens to our podcast pretty frequently. And he said, I can't wait. Something along the lines of, I can't wait to hear Kyle go on and on about the Patriots. And he goes, I can't wait to play them. In two weeks, you guys play the Bills? Uh, we play them. I'm going to look at their schedule right now. Yeah, in two weeks. So Greg is hyped up for that game. And Greg, again, sent uh, sent me a message like, I can't wait to play them and, rec- and reclaim or you know take the top of the, the AFC back. And I told Kyle, for this particular reason... I didn't know he was going to take it to this extent, but I should not be surprised. So um, this is why Kyle is very, very, very um, excited. And <laughs> yeah, he is King Petty. So uh, we'll, we'll leave it at that, honestly, because that was honest. That was, that was funny as shit. That was a great way to end the NFL segment. Uh, Kyle, I know we have to talk about two more topics. Did you want to go over Dan Mullen and keep it in the football side? Or did you want to talk about Clay's eminent return? No, we got, we got one more NFL topic. You missed one. Oh, well, yeah, Monday night, Monday, is it really a... <laughs> yeah, really I, mean, a I, I, don't, I don't really have much of a lead-in on this one. This one's going to be a pretty straightforward segment. So, for the Monday night game, we have the New York Giants traveling to Tampa to go up against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Just to kind of give you guys an update on where these teams currently stand, the Giants are currently sitting at a 3-6 and six record. They had a bye week last week, so coming into the bye, they're looking for a huge road win against Tampa and then to kick it over to the Buccaneers the Buccaneers are coming off of a pretty bad road loss to the Washington football team last week they lost by the score of 29 to 19 so Kevin to kick the question to you who do you have winning the Monday night matchup between the Giants and the Buccaneers well obviously we know that the Giants can be Tom Brady's kryptonite in the Super Bowl but in terms of the regular season Tom Brady owns the matchup so I'm gonna lean toward the defending champion Buccaneers obviously they're coming off of two losses in their last three games. They just got off of a bye. I believe that they are also dealing with some injuries on their side of the football as well. AB still out. Gronkowski's questionable. Vita Vey is not playing. So there are some things that they need to overcome as a unit, but I believe that Tom Brady and that pack will just continue to do what they need to do, and they will be a not bad football team. The Giants have shown life, especially on the defensive side of the ball lately. They have played relatively well. Daniel Jones is doing what he needs to do, and I think that they're also getting Saquon back. I know he's questionable. So they could make it semi-competitive, but with Tampa being a very smothering, run-heavy defensive uh, team, I think that they're going to be able to kind of you know limit Saquon Barkley and that weakened offensive line of the Giants. I think that uh, Tampa's going to win this game by maybe 10 or 14 points. Just because I think that with the week off and Tom being ticked that they lost two games over the last two, three weeks, um, they're definitely going to come at this game and say, we need to absolutely mop the floor with them to regain dominance in the NFC. We've been talking about it not only in this episode, but the past couple, that the NFC has been the top out of the two conferences, but the, the high-seeded teams continue to lose. Tampa's been losing. Dallas lost two of their last three. Green Bay just lost again. So... We're looking at this like, is the shift in power changing or can the Bucks reclaim the top seed in the NFC? We'll continue to have to monitor. I think the Buccaneers win this game, but I don't think it's going to be just a blowout. I think it's actually going to be a competitive game. And it's like you mentioned, it's because the Giants actually have a pretty solid defense. In their last three games, they've only given up 16 points to the Raiders, 17 points to, excuse me, they gave up 20 points to the Chiefs, and then they gave up three to the Panthers. So the last three games, 
their defense has been playing pretty stout. It's really the only thing actually keeping them in these games. It's really, it's not Daniel Jones that's keeping them in these games. It's the defense. But I just think that the Buccaneers are just head and shoulders better than them. Their offense is more dynamic. And despite how good the Giants defense is, I think it's going to be too much to handle for them. The one thing that I would like to see from Tampa in this game is they need to get off to a fast start. In their last two games against the Saints and the Washington football team, they have got off to atrocious starts. And Tom has not been playing particularly well in the last two games. He's had five turnovers. Excuse me, I think he actually has six turnovers in the last two games combined. So Tom definitely needs to clean it up. I would like to see them run the football a little bit more effectively with Leonard Fournette and Ronald Jones. And I think if they get off to that fast start, I think you'll definitely see that one-two combo punch with Fournette and Ronald Jones be effective against that Giants defense. Now, granted, Gronk is questionable for this game, so we don't know whether or not that he's going to be playing. I believe AB is out for this game as well. So the Buccaneers are still dealing with injury issues, not only on the offensive side of the ball, but on the defensive side of the ball as well. Richard Sherman is not going to be playing in this game. You still have Sean Murphy bunting out for a foreseeable amount of time. So the issues that Tampa is dealing with are largely with injuries, but I think that they'll be able to overcome the issues that they've been dealing with as a team the last two weeks. I think they get back on track. I think Tom has a really good game. I wouldn't be surprised if he throws three touchdowns in this game, probably throws somewhere around maybe like 300, 325 yards passing. But I do think that the Giants keep it close. I think the Giants are going to keep this to a seven possession, not a seven possession, a seven point game. But I think that overall, I think it's just the Bucs are going to be too much for them to handle. I think the Bucs win this one by the score of, I'm going to say 28 to 21. I think the Giants defense is actually going to hold Tampa under 30 points. And even with that said, I still think Tampa is one of the better teams in the NFC, but they need to get back on track uh, for me to keep that opinion moving forward. Yeah, it's gonna be a it's gonna be a solid game. I will yeah. say that. I mean, may, maybe my first initial you know prediction wasn't right. I will stick to ten points though, just because I I do think Daniel Jones will make a couple of mistakes, and I think that that you know Saquon being limited with his injury, uh, if he does decide to play, um, the run game is gonna be pretty pretty inept for the most part, at least in my professional just, opinion. Just that run defense for, from Tampa, it's too stout. There really hasn't been a team to really gash them. This season, there's been some effective playmakers here and there as far as running the ball against Tampa, but it's it's not it's not a winning formula as far as I'm concerned. Big but, test next week, though. Well, yeah, I mean, but on that's, both sides, but that that's not until next week, though. No, I know. I'm just saying when you say that they haven't really had anybody gash them, the big test for that defense is going to be against the NFL leading rusher you know, and you know the, the line. You, you know, the sad part is you're not going to be here for that episode. Yeah, I'll be in the air. Yeah, you know, I fly back. You fly back on Thursday night? No, we don't play Thursday night. We don't play the Bucks on Thursday. I, I know that, that, but that's when we record. Oh, yeah. I thought you meant record as in like record the, the after effect. No, yeah, no, 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 no. I mean the lead up into the game. Yeah, no. Well, Thursday's Thanksgiving. So even if I was here, I'd be at my mom's pretty much all night. So yeah, I'll probably, it's, it's, you know. I was just thinking of just doing a, a quick Thursday night record after I get back from my parents' place, but no, yeah. I, I, I was definitely, it'll definitely be fun uh, going over that game. So I'll try to, uh, 
I try to uh, try to live up to your Colts passion. If I if I can get time, I'll be with Isabel's family. We're uh, guys. I'm going on vacation. I leave for Philadelphia tomorrow. I'll be in Delaware and New York, and you know, back in Philadelphia uh, throughout the next five or six days or so. So um, I'm not going to be able to do a lot of our stuff that we normally do. But if I have time. At Thanksgiving, if you let me know, I'm not saying it to guarantee everybody, but if I can at least get into that segment just to give my feedback and opinion, um, I'd love to. But again, I don't even know where I'm going to be. I could end up having no signal. I could be in the boonies. Hell, I might be in the middle of nowhere. I have no idea. Hell, I mean, you could be out in Trinity, north of Tampa. And Trinity is actually a pretty solid place where usually I do like my Amazon routes. No internet service out there. It's so weird. Like you could have cell service out there, but the internet service out there is non-existent it's a literal dead zone as far it, it makes no sense it's a really nice area too it's like up and coming as far as the development goes but it's just odd that there's not one area of internet service out there it's just really odd i've never seen anything quite like it where you actually have to distinguish between cell service and internet service it's really really baffling to me so but no i just it's gonna be a fun game though it's I'm looking forward to it. And then guess what? We play you guys in a couple weeks too. So it's like I said, it's like, it's like I said like last week or two weeks ago. You know, we're going to be bitter enemies that week, dude. It's fine. We've been bitter enemies every time we've played each other since we've met in terms of whenever we play each other. So I'm not going to lie though. Jonathan Taylor might get like 150 to 100, like 175 yards rushing against us. Bill Belichick's a professional at taking away your best weapon. So we will we will see before we get well, ahead of ourselves. We'll stack we the box. We'll stack the things. box. That's that's Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll see what happens. We have some other things we need to cover. Uh the Monday night game is over. Um yeah. I think we should go into the Clay Thompson topic. You ready for that? I'm always ready for it, man. I love me some I love me some Steph Curry talk even if he's just a mention. All right, perfect. So, yeah, we'll transition into our one NBA topic that we have for the episode today, and that is going to be that Clay Thompson is pretty much set for his return around Christmas Day. So based off of a tweet that I've seen from Shams, just reading the tweet as it's stated, Clay Thompson has been cleared to be a full participant at Warriors practice and is on track to make his return a week within Christmas. So we've been waiting for the anticipated return for Clay Thompson to the Golden State Warriors for quite some time now. He's coming off of not only an ACL injury, he's coming off of an Achilles tear last summer. And it looks like we will see Clay Thompson within the next month or so. So, Kevin, to kick the question to you, what are your expectations for Clay Thompson once he's inserted back into the lineup for Golden State? I think it's going to be, truthfully, a slow start. And the reason I say that is because it, it, it's one thing when you miss a couple of weeks in any sport. It's one thing when you miss a couple of months. He's missed two full NBA seasons due to back-to-back significant injuries. So I think that Clay is going to start off a little on the slow side. He's going to have to find his rhythm. He's going to have to find his shooting stroke. He is definitely going to need to find his place in this offense um, the Warriors may struggle trying to get him shots to get himself acclimated and comfortable once again and confident in his shot. Um, and that may deter Steph from the pace that he's going, which is going to suck for me because we all know I love some Steph Curry. But as a whole, I think this is going to benefit the Warriors, and here's why. Clay is going to come back and give this offense a definitive one-spot open shooter. 
And that is going to be Clay Thompson in the corner. Jordan Poole knows how to create for himself. Steph Curry knows how to create for himself. Andrew Wiggins knows how to create for himself. And then when Wiseman gets back, we all know that he finds ways to create for himself down in the post. But the way that Steph has been playing, he is going to demand a double as he always has. If you double him and you leave Clay Thompson open or any of these you know, capable shooters, I think this is going to catapult them into the next level. We've already been talking about the Warriors and how good they've been in the NBA's best record. Klay Thompson automatically makes them that much of a better team just because of his presence on the court. He doesn't have to shoot anything. Him being a decoy, running around the screens and, and making life hell for the opposing defense to have to chase him and Steph, and then you put him on the defensive side. Now that is going to be where I'm curious to see how he's recovered because an ACL and an Achilles injury are very hindering moves or hindering movement injuries. And, you know, a lot of people don't necessarily come back the same. So him being a spot up shooter on the offensive side, it may not change that much because obviously he's a catch and shoot player, but his ability to guard the positions of usually one through three can be a, where we see a little bit of a slowdown aside from clay getting up there in age as well. So um, offensively excited to see what he brings to the table. I, myself, as a, as a defensive-minded person, am curious to see how he fits in this offense um, on the defensive side of the ball as well. Clay's got to get back in a rhythm. I think that he's going to struggle for a probably maybe a couple of weeks, maybe a month or so, but he's going to catch his stride. The Warriors are going to continue to do what they're going to do, and then again, they're going to get Wiseman back. So once everybody gets healthy, this is going to be with this Warriors team either completely catapults and shoots upwards to the moon or they hit that bumpy road that every team hits because of the struggles that Clay's going to have to go through. Yeah, I'm going to distinguish it based off of his offensive performance and his defensive performance. So I think offensively, I think he's going to get back into stride pretty quick, actually. It's like you said, his catch-and-shoot ability is second to none in the NBA compared to anybody else. And I think, honestly... The first week, he might be a little bit rusty, just getting used to the chemistry and the flow of the game again, since he has missed a considerable amount of time with those ACL and Achilles injuries. But I think after the first week or two, he'll be good to go moving forward. I think once he shakes off that early rust, once he gets back into the rotation, I think it's lights out from Clay. I just think that if he were more of a ball-dominant player, I think it'd be a little bit trickier at first because you know you got to gain confidence in your ability to make cuts and granted if it were like Steph coming off of these injuries it would be a lot different but with Clay primarily being a catch and shoot player anyway I think the impact that he's going to be dealing with as far as his rustiness his rustiness with making cuts here and there I don't think it's going to be an issue for him moving forward now on the defensive side of the ball, that is where I think we're going to see a drop-off. Just because when you have the Achilles tear, you have the ACL tear, it's going to impact your ability to recover as far as playing one-on-one defense or your ability to be, to be able to contest shots. And I think, I will say this, I think when it comes to Clay's dominant defensive element to his game, I think that is over with. I think with those two injuries that he's gone through the last two seasons, I just don't think he's ever going to be the same defensive player again. Not to say that he's going to be 
you know, a scrub defensively. I'm not going to say that, but he's just not going to be as reliable as he used to be before these injuries that he sustained. So I still think that Clay, he is the hottest person when it comes to shooting the basketball I've ever seen. There, there is nobody who can get hotter in the game more than Clay Thompson when he's on. Nobody. I mean, the guy dropped 37 points in a quarter against the Sacramento Kings five to six years ago and did it relatively easily. And I'm still of the mindset that Clay can still do that. I'm not saying that he's going to drop 37 points in a quarter, but he can go out and have a phenomenal quarter where he can drop 20, 25 points. I think that he could definitely do that. But offensively, I think he'll be fine. But on the defensive side of the ball, I think that's where you're going to see a considerable drop-off. And it sucks just because injuries do that to you. And granted, he is 31. He's not as young as he used to be. But I still think that Clay's impact for the Golden State Warriors is going to be huge. It's just going to be interesting to see how they insert him back into the lineup because you've seen Jordan Poole step up. You've seen Andrew Wiggins step up in his absence. So going to be something that Steve Kerr is going to have to work out when he actually gets back into the lineup. Because I would like to assume that he would be the starter moving forward. But with the way that Jordan Poole's been playing, dude, I don't know if Poole's going to be liking giving up possibly that starter role. I mean, Jordan Poole has been playing phenomenal basketball. Jordan Poole has no leg to stand on. Clay has been a pivotal part, part in three championships. It is not even a question. As good as he is, bro, you're a child in this league as opposed to Clay Thompson being a vet. Come Papa Squat, you've earned more minutes. You've earned consistent role minutes. I can't. I I can't see them taking or, or sacrificing Clay's spot for pool success. I'll tell you this. Remember when Andre Iguodala came to the Warriors? Yeah. He had to take a back seat. Andre because... Iguodala is not. That's not even a close comparison. I won't even. I uh, will not even. That's not. The, that, that, that's not. That's not the point that I'm making. My point that I'm making is is that Andre Iguodala was a bona fide star. I wouldn't say superstar. Was a bona fide star in his earlier stages of his career. That you can't deny. But he did make a sacrifice to being that starter for Golden State so that Steph Curry and Klay Thompson could have their rise. I'm not saying that... It's going to be the same scenario where Clay reverts to being the sixth man and Jordan Poole takes that spot. I'm not going to say that. It's just that with the way that Jordan Poole has been playing, I'm just saying that decision, it's a little bit trickier than just as, just looking at it. I mean, if you look at it on paper, you're like, oh, yeah, you wouldn't even think twice about it. But, dude, the, with the way that Jordan Poole has been playing, you can't deny the fact that he's been Balling out this year. No denial. And Not I'm, one I'm, single denial. But my thing is, is that do you think that you're going to get the same type of production from Jordan Poole if he takes that backseat to Clay? I it's just it's just something that I'm thinking about. I you know, I understand that Clay is by far and away a better player than Jordan Poole. I understand that. But when Andre Iguodala came to the Warriors. Was he a better than, was he a better player than Clay Thompson at the time that he reverted to that six man role for Golden State? You could make a case that he definitely was. 
It wasn't until Clay really started hitting his strides in probably around what, like 2012, 2013, where he really started taking leaps and bounds in his career. I'm just saying, I still am of the mindset that Clay is going to be the starter moving forward. But with the way that Jordan Poole's been playing, it makes that decision, you kind of have to think it over before you, you just go on and make the decision. That's all I'm saying. So I, th- I think that this is going to make them better because you are going to give them a definitive person to come off the bench in that second unit and lead it. He won't have to defer shots to Steph. He won't have to take a back seat if they were to put him in the lineup with, with Clay because then his minutes would – not minutes, his touches and looks would significantly dip. If he is genuinely running that second unit and he is averaging the 18 or 19 points or so off the bench – that's immediate six man of the year category. You know, that, that, that catapults him into a whole nother discussion. That makes this team that much deeper because when Steph comes out or if Steph gets into foul trouble, you can insert pool and it's going to be fine. If someone does get hurt or needs rest, you can put him right back to what he was and you know he can handle and manage the minutes and the load. So I think that this, this position, like I said, bringing Clay himself back makes them better. But I think inserting pool into that bench player role is going to be a lot more significant than if you were to reverse it and make the decision to put Clay, because who's going to be the ball dominant person to get Clay those shots? If Clay is the best person in the second unit, can Clay create those shots that Steph does for him? Can he be wide open in the corner? No, because Clay's going to be the best person in the unit and they're going to put all of their attention on him. I think it just makes the most sense that you let the two guys, the Splash Brothers that have been doing it for a decade, let them do what they need to do. If it doesn't pan out, if Clay's not the same, if he's getting off to a slow start, or if, God forbid, he gets hurt again, you know Poole can be put there and he'll be fine. I just think it makes the most sense to let the hot hand take a seat, let the vet get a spot back, and kind of play it by there and see how it goes. But if it, it, it rises the way I think it will, Poole being six-man, bro, that's going to be dangerous. I'm just saying, though, it's an interesting point to make, though. Because, like, imagine Clay, I'm just saying, hypothetically speaking, just, just for the sake of the argument here. Yeah. Imagine Clay coming off the bench as a six man. Oh, my God. It'd be money in the bank. And, and, and the I, thing I disagree, is. disagree, though. But I, why? Because Clay thrives off of Steph, Clay thrives being off the ball. Who is going to be the person to create the shots for Clay? Steph, when he gets doubled or comes off of a screen or comes through a back door, Clay gets lost because Steph's doing all the runaround. If Clay is the focal point of that second unit, there's no other distraction. There's nobody that can create for him. Clay de- cannot manage that alone. It, de- it depends on the rotations that they run. Because he- here's the thing like, they could still have Jordan Poole on the court when Clay gets inserted onto the court or they could, or they could change out Wiggins. I mean, they kind of have that flexibility there and really they do. They have the depth. They have the depth at that two and three spot. They have flexibility to kind of make those changes. And that's really kind of the the one piece that we're actually kind of missing from this whole equation is Andrew Wiggins. And Wiggins has been playing phenomenal basketball this year, which is kind of crazy just because Uh, that's what I said. you You know, it's just, We've seen him be inconsistent throughout his entire career, but I I can't hate. He's been playing very good basketball. Really, Golden State's in a really good, advantageous situation here because they have 
three players to pick from that could run, they could run a three man rotation just off those guys alone at the two and three spots relatively easily. So, you know, it's just kind of a situation. It's like, it does, does Steve Kerr mess up a good thing that they have right now, which is the rotation that they're currently running when Clay comes back? I, like, let's just say, for example, let's say like Golden State, when Clay comes back, has only lost like five, six games when he does come back. Just with the way that they've, the start that they've had, they've been phenomenal. Do you put Clay in and mess up the chemistry? That those guys are having, despite all the, the success that they've had to start off the season, I'm just saying. I think everybody's like immediate assumption is, yeah, once Clay's back, he's getting his starting job back, and I and like I think it's a pretty safe assumption. But with the way that these dudes have been running that offense, with the way that Seth's been playing, with the way that Jordan Poole's been playing, with the way that Andrew Wiggins has been playing, do you do you possibly? have an issue with messing that up if you put clay back in after all the time that he's missed i'm just saying no i you kind of you kind of have to think you kind of have to think that through before you end up going through with it that that's all i'm saying just because golden state has been playing phenomenal this year and it makes that decision a little bit more trickier that i think we take it for on face value now one thing i will ask though is can we both agree that he's for sure going to be on a pitch count there's going to be a minute oh, restriction. Oh, absolutely. He's probably going to only play 20, 25 minutes when he gets back. So I'm I'm looking at this and I'm saying, to, 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 to just go into the hypothetical, does Kerr insert him off the bench to get into just the rhythm in general so he doesn't have the pressure of starting? Or does he throw him into the fire like the, the Warriors have been known to do and just say, you know what, fuck, just, just, let's just see what happens? That is where I'll start to consider if he starts to do well with that unit, do you keep him down there because he provides leadership to that unit? I don't know. Now, now here's the thing. Does Clay's ego come into it? Because Clay is one of the best catch and shoot players that we have in the NBA. There's no denial about that. It's just, will would Clay accept that? Andre Iguodala made that sacrifice. And it worked out wonders for them when they were kind of almost presented with a similar situation back when Steph and Clay were having their rise, but Iquadala was more of the he was more of the defined piece that they had on that roster because Steph and Clay hadn't hit their pinnacle yet. But I think they knew what they had with both of those guys moving forward. It's just there's some odd similarities with the situation that Golden State's presented with at this current moment in time, but with the roster that they have, bro, in the way that they've been playing, I'm just saying it's a little bit trickier to just say, yep, Clay's going back into the role that he had before the injury, and we're just going to roll with it. Bro, Jordan Poole, Andrew Wiggins, with the way that they've been playing, and the chemistry that they seem to be building with Steph, it's, I'm just, I'm it's, just it's saying. It's been solid, bro. It's, it's been more I, than solid. I have to stop saying that. It's It's been great. And, you know, again, we're, we're not Steve Kerr. We don't know what the mindset is. We don't know how the minute restriction is going to work or, or how they're going to insert him properly or improperly for that matter. But the fact that we're having this discussion means, bro, people scared, man. Like this, this man is, I'm not going to say make or break because they've been doing it without him. But if he can just give them 40 to 50% of what he used to be, just to be a consistent threat, my God, can this team 
go for another championship. Yeah, and I was an idiot for saying that their freaking championship window was closed. It's not. Not yet. Not, it, it, you know, I was a little premature. It's just that I didn't think that Golden State was going to get it off to this good of a start. I I, I mean, I, I still thought that they would be a, a good team. But, dude, they got that swagger back. I it, it it's very it's eerily reminiscent of what they were like like 2014 2015 that's what everybody is saying this it, it, team is very similar it, to that it, one. It, 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 you know the one thing that always gets me about Golden State it's the reactions on the bench whenever somebody knocks down a three it's just like everybody just throws their hands up in the air and it's just like bro it's just you just change the fire in the cannons bro or you just you know just popping out the chamber bro you just it's crazy. Like, I'm just saying, this team definitely has that same swagger. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> you put Clay back in, bro. If Clay goes crazy in, in a quarter where he's just not missing, <laughs> uh, bro, that- I'm just gonna be. I'm just gonna be waiting for the reactions from the bench, dude. It, it's gonna be fun to watch, it, bro. This team, they're just a fun group. Oh yeah. Like, they, they, like but the thing is, they're. They're good, but they're having fun about it. Like that, that's just the cool part about Golden State. That's really been like the cool part about Golden State's run is that they're just having fun out there. It's not, it was different when LeBron was with Miami. Like it didn't seem like, I mean, they were very good, but it didn't seem like they were having as much fun compared to Golden State. It seemed like, it seemed like Miami had to work at it a lot. What you got, Kevin? What dude, you got? Dude, dude, guys, we haven't had an update for the Sunday night game. The Chargers are are, are smoking the Steelers. They're, they just scored thirty three to twenty. Austin Eckler has four touchdowns. Austin Eckler saw Jonathan Taylor. It was like, oh, five touchdowns. I could beat that. He's got two on the ground, two in the air, and it is wow. It's wild. Pittsburgh is just struggling, and it's just abysmal. But I mean, Pittsburgh's also missing three of their best players, so. What are you yeah. going to do? Yeah, it's just, you know, th- this was a game that we talked about last week, but, uh, you know, you know, you know, the best part about this? Oh, well, I mean, Keenan Allen did have nine catches for 112 yards. So, I mean, he got like 20 points in fantasy, but. It's not over. It's still plenty of time in the fourth quarter. I, th- I just hope they kind of give Austin Eckler the ball more. I'm just kind of hoping for that. But Austin Eckler is probably having a huge fantasy day. Huge. Oh my God, it's ridiculous. He's carving it up on in the air and on the ground, not only just in the end zone but yards wide. So it's he's a he's a he's a beast for fantasy. That's that's well, that's saying something. Th- th- that was the one thing that I was talking about in the episode last week was like like they need they needed to have a good performance from Austin Eckler and given opportunities. Like, dude, he's so dynamic out of the backfield, not only in the run game but in the passing game too. Honestly, I think he's probably more of a dangerous threat out of the backfield than he is running the football. He's almost he's very very similar to Alvin Kamara in in that regard. Granted, I I wouldn't put Austin Eckler as like this as like ability wise or athleticism wise that he's as it, better than Alvin Kamara. But do they utilize him very well in, in L.A. And I mean, it, I apparently it shows in this game against the Steelers. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. All right. All right, guys. Now, well, now, we are we are we are at the end of the episode. Kyle, what do you what, what, what do you got, man? We've got we've got one last topic. It is going to be a begrudging one for Kevin, 
knowing that we're going to talk a little bit about his Florida Gators. So if you guys hadn't heard the news, Dan Mullen has been relieved from his head coaching duties for the Florida Gators after a pretty bad season from beginning to end. Currently, the Florida Gators have a five and six record, and in their last six games, they have been two and four, and the two wins that they have gotten have come against Sanford and Vanderbilt. And the game against Sanford, granted the Gators scored 70 points, but they gave up 52 points to Sanford University. I don't even know where Sanford is. I don't think I don't think I've even heard of Sanford. But Kevin, to kick this to you, was the firing of Dan Mullen justified in your mind? Okay, so guys, I'm looking at this and I'm saying shit, right? We knew that we lost a lot in the NFL draft last year. We knew that we didn't get the greatest recruiting class last year. And we knew that Emory Jones wasn't going to be the quarterback of the future. At least, I know I didn't. You know, I, I didn't think that he was going to be able to carry or follow through with what Kyle Trask was able to do, or even Felipe Franks for that matter, because Emory Jones, to me, was never the answer. Now, Anthony Richardson, a true freshman at the age of 18, was never going to be the answer as well. So when the head of the offense is kind of a toss-up between a freshman and a junior, and the junior not being able to read the field or the defense, and then a freshman not having enough experience in, 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 in collegiate sports, you're looking at this and you're saying, well, shit, what are we going to do? Passing-wise, we have not been able to be consistent. On the ground, we're averaging, what, 215 yards per game? That's insane in an 11-game span. But it's, it's I, I, again, I'm circling the offense. Dan Mullen is an, a, a quarterback whisperer. He is an, an offensive-minded coach. Our issue is the defense. We're letting up 27 points per game. We're 2-6 and six against SEC opponents. We're not winning the games that matter. We're getting embarrassed. We're getting annihilated. I mean, for God's sakes, we had to score 70 points to beat Samford, Stamford, whatever the hell their damn name is, to beat them. And we allowed like 50-something points that game. But again, the firing makes sense to a certain extent. Because last year we didn't end the season the way that we wanted to. I believe we went 8-4. and four. This year we're 5-6. We're and six. So from the first two seasons of Dan Mullen's tenure, we have decreased. But, hey, man, I, I, I think that this was a scapegoat firing. Dan Mullen is still owed $12 million to the university that has to pay him out that $12 million, should I say. Um, so this doesn't seem very wise on their part because – the defensive mind, the defensive coordinator is still employed, which is the main reason why we're losing a lot of these games. So I'm just looking at this and I'm saying, is it the answer? Could it be? Maybe. But again, I also think that that's going to affect our recruiting classes go forward because who's going to want to play for a no-name head coach? So we'll see what happens in the offseason. But the Gators are awful this year. Just awful. <laughs> There's only one way to put it. And... um I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not too happy about the firing, but again, you know, maybe the university sees something that I don't, or maybe they're aware of something that, you know, could unfold in the off season. I have no idea. Yeah. I just, you know, I thought you guys had some hope. I really did. When you guys only lost to Alabama by two points in early September, I thought that this team could at least be a competitive force in the SEC East, but it just did not pan out this year in any way, shape, or form. I mean, since that Alabama game, and granted that was in September, I believe in the third week of September, 
I mean, they lost to Kentucky. They lost to LSU. They lost to South Carolina. And then Mizzou. And Georgia as well. I mean, got absolutely smoked by Georgia. Something had to happen. Some, some heads had to roll when it comes to the coaching staff. If it were up to me, I would have looked more at the, the, the defensive coordinator. Whoever this defensive coordinator is, I do not know his name. But the fact of the matter is, I, I would have fired him after giving him giving up fucking 52 points to Sanford. I mean, for God's sakes, I, are they even a Division One school? I don't know. I, I mean, if they are, they're barely a Division One team. But, I mean, that that's disgraceful. You know, it's one thing you lose 34-7 to to Georgia. It's one thing you lose 49-42 to against LSU in a shootout. I fully understand that. But 52 fucking points to fucking Sanford? That's unacceptable. Hold up. Before I finish this, I got to look up where Sanford University is. I'm curious because... We're almost done with the episode. It's in Birmingham, Alabama. That's where it is. Okay. Oh, another Alabama uh, school. Ah, uh, they got Kevin. Their enrollment for their undergraduate uh, program. They have this is based off their 2018 2019 numbers. Three thousand five hundred twenty four students, and that team, damn near, almost, almost beat the Florida Gators. A prominent team in the SEC. How dare you? How dare you? Good on how, Sanford. How, how dare? How dare they? I mean, yeah. But damn, this is a. It's still an expensive school to go to. It's still thirty thousand a year after financial aid kicks in. Jesus. Oh my God! I'm not getting into no damn demographical breakdown of this damn. stupid ass. School. No, I'm just. No, I just googled it, and that was like the. They have the average annual cost. Right underneath the uh, the enrollment of the school, it's just I was like, wow, Jesus. But no, it's I, I'm of the mindset that some heads had to roll um, after this season at Florida. Was Dan Mullen the guy? I mean, he's the leader of the coaching staff. I mean, I do get that. I would have let go of that defensive coordinator though first, not Dan Mullen. But that's just my opinion. What are you gonna do though? Yeah, right. What what do we know? Yeah, but I know we didn't we didn't end it on the, the best of notes with you, Kevin. I I do I am aware of that. So, but we did start it off very hot with the Indianapolis Colts. So that that was at least we had a good start with that in mind. Listen, it's fine. If you wanted to break my heart further, I mean, we could talk about the Mavs really, you know, breaking my heart. UNC losing two in a row and breaking my heart real quick to start the season. So. Trust me, there's plenty of ways we could have made this 10 times worse for my life, but it's fine. I want to go eat some dinner, even though it's 11 o'clock at night now. By the time this comes out, it'll be nicer and early in the morning, but I think Najee Harris just got knocked out of the game, by the way. Ooh. Ooh. Game's o- the game's over anyway. Ooh. He, he, a, got, ooh. he got lit up. Oh, man, he got hit underneath, and in the transition of him falling back, the, the second defender came over and hit him with the forearm, and he hit the floor whiplash first. Uh, that looked painful. Deontay Johnson, give me points, please, even though I'm still going to lose. Oh, okay, whatever. At least you're getting targets. But, shit, Kevin, I think I'm good, man. You good? 
Um, I'm chilling, man. Guys, as always, thank you so much for the support. Um, I know that we say this legitimately every single week, but again, without you guys, we wouldn't be here. I believe the last I checked, we're at 333 subs, which is insane. Guys, it's absolutely wild. Kyle and I were just hoping to get to 300 by the end of December. We're looking like we're going to hit 350 by the time the new year comes, which is just absolutely incredible. I mean, the goal is 400, but I mean, we're anything that's over three is gravy for us. Um, obviously, a heads up for the foreseeable schedule. As we had mentioned before, I leave for vacation tomorrow. So then that means Kyle is probably going to be doing, oh my God, Deontay, oh my God, Deontay Johnson. Did you pull a hamstring? Jesus Christ. Damn it, I thought he was going to score a touchdown. That was like a 50-yard reception that he just ran out of bounds. I thought he like pulled something. Um, Obviously, we normally record Thursdays and Sundays. I will be gone that whole week. So, I mean, I will try to get here for Sunday, but I will be flying, I believe, Sunday evening. So that's probably not going to happen as well. But Kyle, I know, is very well capable of doing the episodes dolo. As you can tell, he's been able to carry the load pretty much by himself for, for a couple of days now. So shout out to him and, and, and you know, for holding the team together and, and helping us stay at the success rate that we've had over the last couple of weeks. Yeah. I mean, I've really got nothing much more to add other than the fact that, you know, just appreciate you guys supporting the podcast the way that you have, whether it's listening to us on the audio platforms like Spotify and Apple Podcasts. We definitely appreciate you guys tuning in. And if you guys are watching us with our YouTube content, definitely appreciate you guys watching what we provide to you guys. Uh, you know, with Kevin being out for the next episode, I mean, pretty straightforward. Um, we're going to go over, you know, the pretty solid games that we're going to have for the week 12 slate in the NFL. I will probably go over some NBA topics as well. And anything that pops up throughout the week, uh, we'll definitely feature it on our next episode. But other than that, you guys, that's pretty much all that I got to say. And, you know, just thank you guys for tuning in to watch or listen to the episode. And we'll see you guys later this week. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement, inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on Electricast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. Electricast. Miles, are you ready to record our promo for Season 2 of the Wanna Bet Podcast? David, have you ever seen a grown man naked? Miles, we're not here to quote lines from Airplane. We're here to tell people that Season 2 starts August 18th. But I like Airplane. I know you do, but Wanna Bet is a sports betting podcast. Each week we bet $1,000 on the NFL teams and games that we love. Well, that sounds like fun. It is fun. And last year you picked over 60% of your games correctly. How'd you do? We're not talking about that. We are telling people that they can find us every Friday. So no more movie quotes. Roger, Roger. Electric acid.